0: entrepreneurs, business owners, professionals who seek excellence, bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builder Show. Here's Marty Wolf. Welcome to The Business Builder Show with Marty Wolf, the show for entrepreneurs, business owners, and business leaders. I'm Marty Wolf, your host for The Business Builder Show, and along with my executive producer, D.C. Taylor, we will be your guides on this learning journey. Let me tell you my super objective in being with you today. I want to enthusiastically share stories and information to inspire leaders. That's you, by the way, so you can inspire others. My guest with me today is a special guest. His name is Adam Davidson. Hi, Adam. How are you, sir?
1: Hey, Marty. How are you? I'm
0: doing. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, a bunch of things that Adam Davidson is in, involved with, but we're going to focus primarily on his great book, which was referred to me by Tom Peters, and the title of the book is "The Passion Economy: The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century." Let me do a formal introduction. Adam Davidson is the co-founder of NPR's Planet Money podcast, a writer at The New Yorker where he covers economics and business, and the CEO of Three Uncanny Four, a leading podcast production company. Previously, he was an economics writer for The New York Times Magazine. Adam has won many of journalism's most prestigious awards, including a Peabody for his coverage, of the 2008 financial crisis. And apparently he's proud to announce that he lives in Brooklyn. Is that correct, Adam? I'm very proud of it, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You seem to talk about it a lot. So yes, Adam (laughs) Davidson lives in Brooklyn. So the book, the headline of the book is The Passion Economy. So Adam, maybe we should start there. What do you mean by The Passion Economy?
1: Well, I contrast it to the old economy that I think it's replacing, which I call the widget economy. Mm -hmm. So if you think of the 20th century as a really remarkable and unusual period in human history where there was wildly unprecedented economic growth, broadly shared, lots and lots of people benefited. But it was built around essentially getting better and better at making the same things faster and cheaper. Mm. And While there was huge benefits to the widget economy, one of the things, one of the costs, at least for some people, is that to succeed in it, for most people, you had to suppress who you were. You had to become Hmm. a a worker in a company, even if you were a mid-level manager. You had to suppress who you were to meet the needs of the company. And I believe that – and not just me, lots of others – believed that in the 21st century It requires very different things. It requires you, the worst thing you can be is like everyone else, making products like everyone else. You really have to identify your special passion, your special something that makes you able to offer a product or service that no one else could. And so that's what I call the passion economy.
0: You mentioned, uh, well, I'm going to mention two people that you talk about, Jason Bloomer and Megan Phillips. You talk about them individually, and you connect them during the book. So so tell me, tell me that story, I guess, maybe however you want to tell it, either individually or connect them however you want to do it, and then I'm sure you'll make clear on how they are examples of the passion economy.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And um, so I would say it's almost 10 years ago, maybe eight, seven, eight years ago, that um, I was talking to someone um, about this idea, it didn't have a name yet, I really didn't know what it was yet, but I was talking about this idea that our economy um, rewards people for bucking the trends of their industry for doing something unique and special. Mm-hmm. And the person said, you got to talk to Jason Blummer. He's just a renegade hero accountant in accountant. South Carolina. But that and, didn't sound you know, right though. He's a renegade hero right. no.
0: accountant. Okay. Yes, exactly. Keep a going.
1: renegade creative accountant. I thought, Oh, is he in prison? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So, um, so I met Jason and, when I learned his story, I just thought, Oh, this, this is the story. This is the story I want to tell. It started by him telling me that his, one of his core missions in life, he calls it cliff jumping, which means jumping off the cliff of the regular way people do stuff. Hmm. Um, In his case, accounting at a regular CPA firm. And his journey began a few years earlier, around 2003 or so, he was a CPA at a, just your standard mid-sized regional CPA firm. And like hundreds of thousands of other CPAs, he would do you know taxes and payroll and audits, mostly for corporate clients. And he, probably like a lot of accountants, he hated every minute of it and found it boring and lifeless. And really what bothered him is he just kept thinking, my client's I don't do anything they want. Nobody mm. wakes up in the morning and says, well, you know what I'd love to do today? File a tax return or <laughs> pay for three hours of an accountant's time. Yeah. <laughs> and he just started asking this very dangerous question. What if my clients loved what I did? What would it take for my clients to delight in working with me? What would that be like? And he took a very messy, long journey to figure that out luckily we can steal from him and have a much shorter journey because we can learn lessons from him sure and basically he systematically studied what makes me me and what makes the and who are the people i click with and what are the things i can do for them that no one else can and again the the story has a lot of beats and he made a lot of mistakes but What he realized is there was one kind of client he really reacted well to and who seemed to react well to him, which were creative professionals, graphic designers, marketing people, ad people who are really good at their creative work, but don't know how to think about money.
0: Mm.
1: And so he realized, oh, those people, I'm really good at helping them think about their business in a rational, reasonable way. And that is now what his business is. He mm-hmm. works with creative professionals. Actually, after finishing the book, I became one of those creative professionals who hires him. Excellent. Um, it's a little embarrassing to admit. That <laughs> I'm an economic journalist. I'm not always the best at thinking about my phone. <laughs> uh, Cobbler has is, no shoes, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. And he's very good at it. Yeah. And that is, and, and a bunch of lessons that I've learned from Jason. Um, so one lesson is, Do that thing that you are uniquely well. Pay a lot of attention. So if you think back to when he started this journey, like so many of us, he had lots of clients. They all paid him around the same amount. And it was hard to figure out that there was a subset of clients that Mm -hmm. were really special and that he seemed to be doing something special with. Mm -hmm. Then – The really terrifying thing that he did is he fired the clients who weren't special. And he said, I'm only going to work with those people. And then the next thing he did is he said, I'm not going to price by the hour. It's not going to be 50 bucks an hour or whatever to work with me. I'm going to price based on the value I bring you. And that puts pressure on him. I mean, as he points out, (laughs) based on the hour, you're actually – your interests and your client's interests are opposite. I want my accountant to do everything and as quickly as possible, and they want to take as much time as possible. Yeah. But if you price based on the value, so if he's able through his insight to make me make my business $300,000 better, then I'm not going to pay him all that 300000 But if I pay him $30,000, i am going to feel like I got away with something, like I got something really good. And by the way, I think those numbers are not inaccurate that's Mm -hmm. around probably my own experience with him and so pricing based on value a it's a more realistic recognition of what's happening b it's probably going to be a lot more money but only if he's doing the thing that he actually creates value if all he's doing is routine work like filing your tax return he's not acting act adding a lot of value. You could get TurboTax to do it. Yeah. yeah. And, and then number three, he gets to have far fewer clients. So he used to, like most CPAs, have hundreds of clients. Now he has forty, and that feels like about as many as he can handle because he's really wrapped up in our business in a yeah. very real way.
0: Yeah. That was a hugely heroic step. I mean that was that took huge courage to take that step. And and and, and, and he and God did bless it him. as
1: a father with young kids and yeah. a wife. Who yeah. wasn't making a lot of money? I mean, it was it could have gone bad, and I yeah, in the beginning exactly. it did go bad a little yeah. bit. He had some lean years, yeah. but he's doing very well now. Um, although yeah. he, when he talks to people now, he says you can never get there can never be too narrow a niche or mm-hmm. a niche as he calls it. Mm-hmm. But you could go to your niche too quickly, <laughs> so he, mm. he is mindful that some people do need to take a minute yeah. before they fire all their clients.
0: Yeah. And, and one of those clients turned out to be the other name I mentioned, right? Megan Phillips, right?
1: Yeah. So through Jason, I met Megan Phillips because I kept saying to him, well, I, I understand the value of this new approach to you, but what is the value you bring to your clients? I wanted to understand that. and um, And so he suggested Megan, and Megan, who I've really become a big fan of she grew up in um sonoma county california wine country um her father worked in the supermarket business Mm -hmm. um managing supermarkets and um and all her friends were the children of basically grape farmers and she grew up got started a marketing company and like so many new entrepreneurs she was terrified of having enough business and she said yes to every single person who knocked on her door and did whatever they asked her to do. And she had, uh, even though she launched right in the financial crisis, right in 2008, um, which might've been a crazy idea, except that all the big firms were laying people off so much that Mm -hmm. there actually was a lot of work for Mm -hmm. Mm herself. And she just worked like crazy, got had so many clients and just didn't have any money. She couldn't pay herself anything. and she had she started looking and she had an accountant who was more the standard you know did sure their taxes Mm -hmm. and stuff and she'd call the accountant say why am i broke and the accountant would say (laughs) you got to fill out your taxes or whatever the accountant said and had nothing valuable to say so megan started googling around and she stumbled upon jason started listening to jason's podcast and thought i need that i need a cre- someone, I'm that person. I'm the creative person who doesn't know what he- she's doing. And so Jason flew out, spent a few days in a retreat with Megan and her then business partner and realized that she was doing something so many, I'm sure so many of your listeners do, so Absolutely. many entrepreneurs
0: do. Absolutely. Yep.
1: E- each time there's a potential customer, you're just thinking, all right, I got to close this sale. I got to close this sale. And if I close all the sales, I'll make a lot of money. But Jason helped guide her to see some of her clients were actually costing her money. They were requiring so much work and so much frustration. But also just the volume of business made no sense. It was keeping her company so busy they couldn't do the kind of quality work she wanted to do. And they were all over the place. You know, one day it's a manufacturer. The next day it's a healthcare company. The next day it's a restaurant. And so he had her... Do a version of what he did himself. What What is you? What is your unique thing? And she realized, I love wine. And I love wine not just to, to drink it, although I have drunk plenty of wine with Megan. She doesn't <laughs> think we both like to drink it. But I love the nature of wine. I lo- I grew up with wine people. Sure. I like, you know, and she helped me see. there. There's kind of the wine snob world where yeah,
0: you explain people that. in
1: New York, you know, use French words and act all fancy. But then there's this real, like, Hands in the earth, yeah. real blue collar kind of wine professional world that she loves. Right. And she knows really well. She speaks their language. And more broadly, she likes any kind of chef or winemaker or food company where there's just an authentic, real voice feeling. You know, someone, not just sure. a big company that came out with a new version of Oreo cookies or something, but a real. <laughs> vision a real voice a real passion and so she did the blummer thing which terrified her it was Mm -hmm. it's always terrifying she fired all the clients who didn't fit she focused on the clients who did and shockingly she learned the lesson that so many of us somehow don't learn which is Businesses don't succeed by having more revenue. They succeed by having more profit.
0: More profit. Yes, (laughs) Yes,
1: exactly. And, And so she was able to have a lot less work, but make a lot more money and do that work better, have a more sustainable culture where instead of working 80 hours a week and bringing home nothing, she was working more like 50 hours a week and bringing home real money and also able to support her staff. Yeah. etc and and that's what jason i mean he's like a johnny appleseed of passion he's right. able to go around the country and guide people like megan through this transformation and it's a real transformation i mean you've never her life is just completely different because so, of learning yeah. these lessons
0: i've communicated with her via uh, linkedin and i want to have her on the show too her her company is uh the honey agency am i correct yes. Honey exactly. Agency. Yeah, so so she's super. But just a comment to what you said. Uh, part of the, well, this is a, my own bias, I guess. Cause so many pundits are saying, uh, say yes to everything and then figure it out later. Well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, maybe if you have a clear vision of what you want to do, a clear mission of who you are, what you are. Well, uh, yeah, But so many, especially younger entrepreneurs, say yes to everything, and they don't figure out anything and it's and it's a challenge so that's what jason and megan are doing by the way i want to make sure everybody knows who i'm speaking with it is adam davidson he is the co-founder of npr's planet money and he has a new podcast company we're going to talk about in a few minutes his book is the passion economy the new rules for thriving in the 21st century it is a great book Adam, I want to move to Chapter 9. I loved this story. And the Chapter 9 is titled, Don't Be a Commodity. And you talk about a company called General Pencil. I can't think of any more of a commodity than a number two pencil. So this needs some explanation. Talk to me. Yeah,
1: this was this was actually, chronologically, the very first story I did. Interesting. I wrote about for the New York Times Magazine that led to some of these ideas. Um, I went... I mean, honestly, it it was just at first just an excuse to go to a pencil factory (laughs) (laughs) because I like going to factories and it's fun. And I somehow learned that there was still a pencil factory right across um, the Hudson River from Manhattan called General Pencil. And I went there and it's this crazy place. It was this factory was built in the late 1800s. They added some major new technology like in 1904. And it's has the feel of that. It's, it hasn't mm-hmm. changed much.
0: All pulleys giant, and belts and stuff like that run yeah, in the factory, giant right? Leather belts right. <laughs> running these right.
1: huge, dirty cans to, you know, massive <laughs> drums to right. make the graphite and, right. and it's run by the Weissenborn family. And they had a, they were a, the standard success story of the 20th century. They made number two yellow pencils, um, that and and, you know they had a range of others but number two yellow pencils it's a fairly cheap product it's reasonably expensive to ship long distance so they just had lots of contracts at public schools and private schools mostly in the new jersey area but around the country and it was just you know, every year in America in the 20th century, there's more kids, and so there's more students, and so there's more pencils, and the order, they were basically order takers. They Mm -hmm. took a call, all right, the Syosset School District needs, you know, 3,000 gross, or whatever it was, we'll send them 3,000 gross. Mm -hmm. And that worked great for about 100 years. And then the story came that a different story that we're so used to um they started hearing about these cheap pencils coming from china Mm -hmm. and at first those cheap pencils were pretty crappy they break and the graphite wasn't very good and school districts didn't like them but sure enough those cheap pencils got to be better pencils but still very inexpensive um china was the chinese companies were actually had a lot of low cost labor, but they also were buying the latest machines and pencil making technology. And for a good decade, um, general pencil tried to hold on. They, you know, kept every year begging each school district to keep them on and just slowly, slowly year after year, they're losing clients, losing clients. And the company's pretty much done. It's just over. And we know that story. That's a story we're very familiar, right? The Mm -hmm family business that's destroyed by competition from China. Well, the owner, Jim Weissenborn, his daughter, Katie, never wanted to be in the pencil business. She was an artist. She liked using pencils, but she didn't want to run a pencil company, especially a dying pencil company. But one day she was in a shop and she was looking for pencils for a class she was teaching for children. And she realized there's these cheap number two pencils. And then there's these much more expensive, fancy German and Japanese made pencils that cost a lot and are really good. But she thought, well, those are, cr- it's crazy to ask a bunch of like six year olds to spend $2 per pencil. And she thought, oh my goodness, there's a place in the market for a quality pencil, mm. but not a crazy expensive quality pencil. And she knew that General Pencil, that she knew their product was better. And she knew that they could be more adaptable. They could make them in different colors, different sizes. They could create different kits. So she created a line of kits where you could just buy a little box that has sort of here's how to draw mm-hmm. ponies or how to draw spaceships or whatever. Mm-hmm. And here's some pencils and some erasers and some charcoal. And, you know, it could be a nice gift to give your grandkid or whatever it might be. And you might think this is a small little add-on, but it's not. It saved the business. Mm-hmm. It transformed from one that's uh, um, selling huge numbers of – and this is essentially the difference that I'm talking about from the 20th to the 21st. The 20th century was all about sell hundreds of millions of cent at a fraction of a penny each to sell a few to a really specific group of people that you know uniquely well. She knew her customer because she was her
0: customer. Mm
1: -hmm. And there's no giant Chinese – company shipping container loads filled with pencils is going to figure out, oh, there's this price point that, you know, moms and grandparents are looking for that we're not hitting. They're not. It's too small a market for them, but it's a huge market for General Pencil. Um, The biggest moment was when Katie told her dad, we're not selling to Walmart anymore. That's just a loser's game. We're never going to. And of course, Walmart was their biggest customer, but they bravely said no more we're not going to be in the fractions of a penny game we're yeah. going to be in the 80 cents a pencil game
0: yeah yeah big 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 difference obviously uh yeah. the 20th the uh the the previous the century was all about lean and and you still have to do that but volume keep keep pushing production costs down and make more of them and ship more of them now it's more of a i guess i'm not putting words in your in your book or your mouth but it's more of a quality, very designated to the right kind of customer matchup. That that uh, really is what you're writing about. I, I didn't want to put words in your mouth, but no, I don't no.
1: know. I couldn't put it better myself.
0: <laughs> okay, exactly. good. Yeah. So, so I want to go to one more section of the book. Are we doing okay on time, Adam? You know, I, I'm good. Okay, I'm good. Fun. This is so great. Yeah. uh so chapter eleven, the nudge. You spent quite a few pages on the nudge because there's multiple stories there. It's maybe unfair to ask you to sum this up as as simply as you can, but talk to me about the nudge. Kind of give me that story or give us all that story because it's fascinating.
1: Sure. So, I mean, big picture, I was really, you know, I wrote a lot in the book about entrepreneurs or people who inherited a struggling family business who figured out how to take advantage of the passion economy and succeed. But I was really curious about how, How can large corporations, either the people who run them or people who work in them, how can they embrace the passion economy? What Mm -hmm. would that even look like? Mm -hmm. And that brought me to this company, Humu, which um, essentially it's a bunch of people who ran Google's human resources teams, and they're applying some of the huge lessons Google learned about managing large numbers of people. and, and they're taking those tools and providing them to a much bigger, um, you know, to all sorts of companies. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Google has this interesting challenge, which is, you know, most of its employees are these very highly paid, um, brilliant computer scientists, each of whom has his or her own, you know, unique interests and specialty. And it's really worth it to foster that because Mm -hmm. one of them might come up with Gmail and another one might come up with the ad sales um, system that they developed. In fact, those, I believe, from what I understand, both were kind of accidental byproducts by motivated employees. But Mm -hmm. what if you work at a supermarket chain or um, a a fast food restaurant? How do you – motivate employees who might be making minimum wage or close to it and this brings us to the idea of the nudge and this is a big idea that comes out of something called behavioral economics Mm -hmm. and so you know as you're probably familiar economists generally look at human beings as emotionless robots who to numbers we respond to numbers yes and we we express our preferences through numbers um then there was this revolution lots been written about it i really love danny kahneman daniel kahneman's mm-hmm. book mm-hmm. As slow as a way to think about it right. but that human beings brains work slightly differently than say the model economists often describe and out of that work came this actually like surprising and and i would say ultimately very optimistic lesson yes that's now well supported which is sometimes if you want to radically change people's behavior you could you one thing would be to radically change everything let's throw out capitalism let's completely change the whole government (laughs) let's let's pass new laws but another way that often works better is let's just give a little nudge let's just Mm -hmm. point them in the right direction so the classic example is um 401ks that you know, people start a new job. When they start the new job, the HR department says, hey, here's a form. Do you want to save money for your 401k? And we all, of course, know we should, and most people don't. Right. (laughs) And so a few companies, starting with, I believe, standard envelopes, said, we're going to try this new thing. We're just going to sign you up for a 401k. You're free to opt out. You're free to tell us you don't want to save, but we're just going to the default will no longer be you don't save for retirement, it'll be you do save for retirement. Right. And it flipped. It went from most people don't to most people do. Yeah. Partly that's because we're lazy. Partly it's because just when you're presented with a default option, you sort of figure, oh, that must be the right option. Well, it turns out this is crucial for passion, that if you think of a large corporation filled with employees, you could have the 20th century model of here are our rules and here are our policies and you have to fill out Form 372G. And, you know, probably companies still need to do some bit of that. Sure. But if you want to motivate your employees, you want to capture their unique passion, you want them to bring their passion to work, there are these subtle nudges you could do. So what okay. Humu does is it, it has, it uses artificial intelligence and the right. most cutting-edge Google-type.
0: Fascinating, it, yeah
1: but but it will say to say the bosses at a company hey walk up to one employee and just ask them what are you thinking about today or what's a change you would make mm-hmm. or and and through these slight little nudges they're finding it can completely transform a company
0: yeah it's fascinating it really is fascinating page 248 it says the nudge is one of the most important and impactful ideas to come out of the collaboration between economists and psychologists That's all we're going to tell you. You have to read the book, folks. Um, Yeah, that's the important thing. Yeah, you got to read the book. So my (laughs) guest is Adam Davidson. The book is The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century. And I'm pretty sure uh, Adam would love to connect with you on Twitter. Is that correct, Adam?
1: Absolutely. I'm at at Adam Davidson, and I'm an active Twitter follower, especially people who say nice things about my book, as you know, Marty.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for paying attention to that. Now, I can't let you leave without talking to me. And talking to all of us about what you're doing at Three Uncanny, Three Uncanny for Productions. What's that all about?
1: I mean, honestly, I, I wrote this book and I was a journalist and then I was like, wait, I got to apply these lessons <laughs> in my life. So with my co-founder, Laura Mayer, I created a podcast company um, that's a joint venture with Sony Music. Mm-hmm. And really, our mission is to capture the passions of hosts and producers and others and find audiences who will respond to those passions.
0: It's Mm -hmm. the exact
1: lesson. And I think Marty, you also have experienced this that I started in radio in the early nineties and it was all broadcast and broadcast drive time, national broadcast. I worked for public radio Mm -hmm. is very much a 20th century kind of thing because you create one show and you want everyone in America to listen to it. 80-year-olds in Alabama and 23-year-olds in San Francisco. You want to create something they all like. And podcasting came along and has upended that mm-hmm. because, you know, in in a in traditional radio, there's only so many stations. Most listening is done during drive time. So there's only four hours or so a day that matter. And, and so there can only be so much radio going on at, that makes any – kind of money. And it's all trying to get these mass audiences. Mm-hmm. That's why there's up 40 this and top 40 that and talk shows that try and not educate you, but get you all worked up and angry because <laughs> right. they found that's what gets people yeah. to, right. to listen. And with podcasting, A, you can have infinite ones, right? I've, I've heard there's 800 new podcasts a day. There's a lot of them. <laughs> uh, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And, But each podcast can have its audience. Some of them have millions of listeners. Some of them have a few dozen. Um, But then more importantly, podcasts can monetize passion that um, if you look at the ad rates and the other ways, and this gets complicated, we probably don't have time, but you actually, if you are really engaging an audience, if they really love you, Mm -hmm. you will make more money, even if the audience is smaller. Uh, And That's certainly something I've learned and I've discovered. So
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. uh, what am I doing? I'm living my book, really.
0: That's fascinating. (laughs) That is really cool um yeah and i love the idea of podcasting i was kind of a pioneer right dc taylor we've been doing podcasting a long time
1: yeah, I w- yeah very many many years I, yeah, before I mean, it was cool as the yeah <laughs> i
0: should have probably noted that uh i'm not making I tons of money though <laughs> yeah there you go so well hey listen uh, adam this has been a, a real treat um again you can find adam uh at uh adam davidson at adam davidson on twitter Uh, You do want to check out the book, The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century. And wow, this has just been a great book, a great interview. And thank you so much for being part of the Business Builder Show.
1: It's been a real joy. Thank you so
0: much. Thank you so much for listening to the Business Builder Show. To learn more about me and I'm Marty Wolf, go to martywolfbusinesssolutions.com. That's Marty Wolf businesssolutions.com. To learn more about Kelly Hoey, go to her website, which is jkellyhoey.co. That's jkellyhoey.co. And of course, you can find Kelly and Marty on LinkedIn and Twitter. A reminder, you can find all our Business Builders shows on iTunes, Spotify, and on your favorite podcast app. Bringing the business classroom to you, it's the Business Builders Show with Marty Wolf.